My name's Rob Webster. This is Full Circle, a Dream Theatre podcast. This episode, we'll be listening to When Dream and Day Unite. And joining me on our adventure is special guest Scott Hansen. Welcome, Scott. Hello. Nice to be here. I appreciate the invitation there, Rob. I appreciate you accepting the invitation. For some fans, this will be the first time they've met you, but you're pretty active in the Dream Theatre fan base. So where might fans of the band have encountered you before? Um, well, it could be in a number of different ways. I mean, I go way back, so I used to be on the Yitzhak Jam mailing list way back in the day. For many years, I was on uh, my Portnoy forums. Plus, also with regards to the different things that I've done, I've you know the the altered album covers that uh, used to appear on the video screens when Dream Theater would do a cover song or a cover album. I had no idea. I didn't know that was you. I, I started doing that. I, I you know I was I did a lot of Photoshop work, and um, so it was just natural for me to do that, and I had a ball doing it. And then I've also done a number of other things. I was the one who uh, worked on the tourography, the actual keeping track of all the t- uh, all the set lists. Uh, what else? Well, helping the fan clubs. I guess you could say I was a staff member of sorts, contributing different articles and interviews and things of that nature at various times. So a number of different things. It's, I remember I remember you being in the uh, Voices UK fanzine quite a lot. I was a member of Voices UK in the in the mid aughts. It was always a good time when it was a it was a set list Scotty article. Oh, thank you much. I appreciate that. So what people might not know about you is that you've been a fan of the band basically since the band started. When did you discover Dream Theater? I discovered Dream Theater the summer of 89. Back in the late 80s, I used to read all the, the hard rock metal magazines, or at least three of them primarily, Circus, Hit Parader, and Rip Magazine. And I remember very distinctly, I would read the whole thing. So I would read the album reviews of bands that I had no clue about. And there was this one that stood out. And it's this band that I'd never heard of before. It was their first album. I was just kind of reading over it. And it says that among their influences was a whole bunch of Rush. And that right there grabbed my attention because Rush was my number one band. And so I figured, okay, I got to check out this album. And so that happened to be when Dream and Day Unite. And, um, you know, I've been a fan ever since then. We'll start talking about the music in just a second, uh, but first off, I want to I want to tackle the cover art. Uh, not to judge an album by its cover, but it's it's a pretty bold choice, right? In hindsight, yeah. I mean, to be quite frank with you, when I picked up the album, I really didn't think about it that much. Um, I, you have to keep in mind, though, too. I mean, I didn't have anything else to really compare it to in terms of Dream Theater because that was the only album that was available at the time. I mean, if I was somebody who came became a fan of the band much later, then I'm like, oh, they have this first album that came up before Images and Words. Let me go pick it up. And I, what is this? <laughs> Again, I mean, it's the same reaction with regards to the way people react to the mix and to Charlie being the vocalist on the album. I think all those things, to me, it didn't seem abnormal or super weird just because that was you know all i knew at the time i didn't have anything else to as a reference no that makes sense that makes sense yeah it's i i got into the band around train of thought era and it's sort of for the good first year or so of listening to the band i was sort of dimly aware of this sort of secret first album with a different vocalist uh, way back in their dim and distant past way back in ancient days it was before Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, that's where culture starts for me. 
I've I've been looking around for the uh, for the album artist. She's called Amy Guip. Uh, I think that's how it's pronounced. It sounds like. Uh, it, as yeah. far as I can tell, she's still active and still taking photographs. All right, on. First result, if you Google the name, Amy Guip is a photographer who went to Syracuse University, so would have been around New York around 1989. Set up a studio in 1990, so it's nice to have a uh, a good news story. I think I had the idea for this podcast about eight months ago now, <laughs> and for a while I was thinking it would be really cool if I just listened to When Dream and Day Unite between the time of having the idea uh, and recording the podcast. I didn't quite last that long, but I like the idea of living in a world where When Dream and Day Unite was the only Dream Theater album. That's all I had for three years, you know, so... Exactly. I thought it's sort of there's kind of method acting thing going on there. And the thing that really struck me about it, and sort of the more I've been listening to it and re-listening to it without the rest of Dream Theater's discography, is how indulgent the intro to A Fortune in Lies is. Everything up to the sort of dun 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 doesn't really have a great deal to do with the rest of the song, but it sort of works like this really bombastic, majestic prelude. And so I think it feels less indulgent now with the context of history. Now we've heard like the glass prison or whatever, but yeah, the fact that the vocals didn't come in after five seconds or ten seconds, like in pop music, right? Or yeah, exactly. And the instrumental acrobatics on show just in that first 20 seconds, maybe minute or so, uh, they're quite something. I, I recommend everyone to go listen to it again with, uh, with those ears. Especially in my first listen, I'm listening for all the rush. <laughs> I'm like, this doesn't really sound too much like Rush. Charlie made a comment. Well, you know, I can understand because, you know, some of my vocals and status seekers sound a little bit like like Getty Lee singing New World, man. And that's true. But again, I mean, you know, my very first listen. Yeah. A Fortune and Lies was my very first song ever. Um, You know, again, I think more than anything else, I was just waiting for the rush. (laughs) I got to hear the rush. You know, and I mean, you know, and then over time, the more times I listened to the album, of course, then I started to appreciate it for what it was as opposed to a rush clone, if you will. It's written by the band while they were still called Majesty, of course. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a song I think that a band called Majesty would write. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, the whole, say that about the whole album, really, because, I mean, the album was recorded while they were still Majesty. The cover art as well. This this will not be used to you, Scotty, but uh, the brand is an M for Majesty. So real goof for the ages. Who knew they were going to change their name? It's, I don't think of it as an M anymore. I just think of it as the Majesty symbol. You know, the one thing, if if people have a copy of the When Dream and Day Unite demos uh, on the Yitzhak Records, the artwork that is on the cover there actually is, I believe, what the original cover was supposed to be for When Dream and Day Unite. 
and it's basically I think I think the picture is I can't remember if it's exactly the same. I know the coloring is definitely different, but I can't remember if it's the same exact pose or if it's a slightly different pose or maybe from a different photo shoot. I don't know. I think it's probably from the same photo shoot, though. I think. Do you have it? Do you have the uh, demos? Uh, I do not have the demos. No. No shame on you. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those. Uh, it's the Itzy Jam Records. I think. Yeah, because I was getting into the band right back in 2004, 2005. Yeah, between Dream, Dream of Thought and Dr. Varian. It's, there, was, there might still be a, uh, a six-week turnaround thing uh, when it was sort of saying about shipping internationally. From the threads that I've read, it sounds like they still... I don't know if the, which uh, items are still available. I think some of them might ha- might be out of print or at least they're not you know, available right now, but you know, you still might be able to get that one and some of the others. I mean, I would totally recommend for anybody who is a big dream theater fan to pick up all the releases while they're still available. Cause I don't know how long they will be available for. It's hard to say. It doesn't seem like the band is bothering with any more new releases. And the fact that some of them seem to have been unavailable for a long period of time. It really makes you wonder if they're going to ever bother repressing any of them or not. That's a very good shout. It's I have. I was thinking the other day, I feel like the Yitzhak Jam, Jam records are sort of ahead of their time a little bit. It's the kind of idea that would work really well right now with the sort of streaming and being able to download. And... Oh, yeah, totally. They could have even done it way back when, too, because, I mean, figure iTunes has been around, what, since 2003, something like that. So what's your favorite part of A Fortune in Lies? What are the highlights of this song for you? I think if I had to pick a favorite part, it would probably be the instrumental part like uh, um, right before the guitar solo. Not the guitar solo itself. The guitar solo itself is really good with all the tapping and everything. Mm -hmm. But I just kind of like... I think it's like Mike has kind of like... I don't know if you want to call it a drum roll or, or what it is or a drum fill... But there's just a part right before that I just, it's kind of like, I just, but you know, just has something to it that I really enjoy. Lyrically, it is about a friend of the band who did some crimes. I uh, I hope it's not you, Scott. This would be a dreadful way to find out. I wasn't a friend of them back then, so can't be me. Excellent, you're clear. <laughs> You've got an alibi. Uh, there's there's samples. This is the first use of samples in any Dream Theatre song. I suppose it would have to be chronologically. They're from a prison documentary, allegedly. Some TV documentary, which uh, the exact identity of which has been lost to the mists of time, as best I can tell. And the line is, for the first time in a long time, everything was right in my world, and then I woke up. And that is the end of my fortune in life trivia. <laughs> so, is it overall, is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down for the first song on the first album? It's a thumbs up for me. It's a thumbs up for me. It's a good song. Not my favourite, but, but it is definitely a good song. Absolutely. I agree. I would say it is 
Uh, I would say that it is Dream Theater's first classic song. Fair enough. I can see that. I can see that. I would not say the same thing about Status Seeker. Controversial question. Is it okay if I like this song? Yeah, why not? Do you like this song? I do. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, this is probably one of those situations. I know this was just discussed on Dream Theater Forums uh, not long ago Mm -hmm. about do comments from individuals such as Mike have an influence on us and what we think. But I want to say it's probably more likely it was just pinpointing what I didn't like about the song. And that is the introduction. The introduction is just kind of eh, kind of weird, kind of wimpy. You know, <laughs> that's the only part of the song I, I probably don't like. I really, you know, for anybody who's out there, go ahead and dig up one of the, the bootlegs uh, from when they played the song live in the summer of 1993 in the United States. And they redid it. They don't really, I, I don't know how you describe the introduction that they used, but it was rewritten. And it's just kind of building more than anything else. It's not like it has anything, you know, like a, a big grandiose introduction. But I like it a lot better that way than I like the original studio version. Some fans might not know, I didn't know until you sent me the interview that you did with Charlie Dominici, is that Charlie Dominici wrote a small amount of intro. Or he rewrote it, right? Because he was, I was actually, I was just re-listening to it before our chat started. And he, I think it sounds like Kevin had kind of had the vocal or the keyboard melody, but then Charlie made some suggestions about changing it a bit, right? Yeah, it's the arrangement. It's sort of going rather than... It's sort of repeating one of the bars and it's... Yeah, repeat half of it and go lower or something yeah. like that. I've always really liked it, but it is incredibly cheesy in the 80s, a lot more so than I remembered. And I think it is... I don't think it ever feels as explicitly 80s as it does in Status Seeker. 
Probably, I, I, I think I could, I could agree with that. Yeah, if you had to pick out a song that sounds the most dated, that would probably be the one. What are your favorite bits of Starter Seeker? Hmm. You know, I didn't even really give that one much thought, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe cause, maybe the part where Charlie sounds like Getty. <laughs> <is singing through>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a good answer. I'll take that. For me, the one that I've written down is just the chorus in general, because I feel like that is the bit where it is maximum 80s. And I think if you want to listen to Status Seeker and enjoy Status Seeker, you have to embrace the tone of it. Well on board with the chorus. Lyrically, it is about... This was in the I Can Remember When documentary, which is a bonus feature on When Dream and Day Reunite, available now from Yitzhak Jam Records, I hope. Well, definitely worthwhile, even for you know people that, that aren't into official bootlegs. This is that's definitely one, especially if they have their issues with When Dream and Day Unite, the original album. It's definitely worth picking up. Buzz James is singing the songs, so, you know, I mean... Two biggest issues people have is, well, the mix sucks and Charlie's on there. Well, you know, now those things have been taken care of. I really like that Charlie Dominici said that back in the day, this is again from the interview that you sent me, when people were complaining about uh, his vocals, he used to go onto internet message boards under fake names and be like, oh, I hate that Charlie Dominici's voice and sort of stirring <laughs> the pot in both directions. He's, he's, he's a humble guy. He's not... He's not arrogant or anything of that nature, which is, you know, it's something that's very cool about him. For anybody who has the opportunity to meet him, please, you know, go up to him, say hello if you see him at a concert, you know, because he still goes to Dream Theater concerts. I don't know where he's living right now, but if there's a Dream Theater concert in the area, I know he'll he'll probably end up going to the show. And if you see him, say hello to him. He won't bite your head off. He's he's a super cool guy. And he did he did write the lyrics to this one along with John Petrucci. Uh, thematically, it is uh, it, it, the way he tells it is that he and John got together to write, and instead they started drinking and complaining about how everyone was telling them to get a real job, and that now they had a record deal. That the they were seeing the vibe changing. That it, from oh you should get a haircut to uh, oh we always believed in you yeah uh, oh they're in a band it all makes sense uh, is the way they put it hey Scott I've got a question for you and it's going to take you by surprise thumbs up or thumbs down for status seeker um, I would say thumb sideways. I mean, honestly, I guess if I, I would say thumb up, I, I don't have a problem with the song. Like I said, the, the introduction, the intro to the song on the studio version, not a big fan of, but otherwise I like the song. The lyrics I can appreciate, um, musically overall, the song doesn't, doesn't bother me. It's not a song that I dislike. Um, there are a few songs in Dream Theater's catalog that I'm not a big fan of, but I wouldn't say that Status Seeker is on that list, so I would still give it a thumbs up. I am going to stand right there in solidarity with you. 
uh, I'm going to give it a thumbs up as well. Uh, so this is now officially the Statusseeker fan club. And if you've got a problem with that, you can fight us. So <laughs> <laughs> let's go on to Gene Theatre's first instrumental, uh, It's a Jam. Uh, I don't want to blow anyone's mind here, but if you say Yitze Jam backwards, you get Jam Yitze, which was the name of the band's lawyer. I think, I think I've think i got that bit of trivia correct. <laughs> yeah, if you look at Yitze Jam, write Yitze Jam, stick it in the mirror and then read it, it says something different. It says Majesty, obviously. And it summons Charlie Dominici if you say it three times. Honestly, I don't even remember where. I think I must have learned about that on the Yitze Jam mailing list. Um, that wasn't something that I learned until later. That that much I can tell you. But I mean, probably sometime in the 90s I learned that. It's 1989. You're listening to this album for the first time. How are you feeling about your purchase at this stage? I like it. You know, I mean, um, again, I'm I'm more than anything else, I'm looking for the the rush. And I would definitely say... You know, this song definitely had little bits that definitely made me think of YYZ. Absolutely. You know, this is kind of like, to me, Dream Theater's YYZ from Rush. So, you know, I mean, obviously with YYZ, it just has the bass and the drum solos back and forth. And you don't have back and forth solos, but you do get an individual solo from each of the guys. I fully agree. This is sort of the one that I've pegged in my notes as the one where it's got the most explicit Rush influence. And you've got the the choppy bit towards the middle where it's that bit there's nothing in YYZ that quite sounds like that but it just has the it just feels like it comes from the same vibe and I I couldn't find anywhere where they explicitly said yeah, we were thinking of YYZ when we were... Sorry, YYZ. This is a this is a dream theatre podcast. I should take my Britishisms elsewhere. But the proper name for it is YYZ, because Canucks like to say Z as well. Oh, right? do they? They're with us on this. Excellent. Oh, I'll take that. Uh, while he's not listening, and because it did come up just then, what do you think of Charlie Dominici's vocals yourself? You have to keep in mind that for me personally, um, having started out with When Dream and Day Unite as my first album... My perspective is going to be definitely different from most other fans that got into Dream Theater with later albums. So for me, it's just always been natural. It's never phased me. When I hear James singing songs that are from this album, I mean, obviously I can hear wider range. I can hear uh, better vocal clarity, things of that nature. But, you know, again, I mean, I'm I'm very much used to Charlie singing. And so it doesn't faze me at all, personally. Not at all. It was, a, for me, it was a shock when I first heard it. I don't know what I was expecting him to sound like. I think maybe I just expected he would sound like James LeBrie with a different accent. Uh, and it is, it's a very different style, I would say. But I am, I would say that I am basically a fan of his vocals. It's, I really like, on uh, Reunite, I think he sounds really good singing Metropolis. He can't necessarily hit the notes that James could, but yeah, I mean, yeah, the parts that he sings, he does, he does a good job, and even when he sang "To Live Forever" as well at that same gig, you know, he did a good job. Uh, so, what are your highlights in Yitzhak Jam then? Now that we've been talking all about the vocals during this instrumental track, hmm. If there's, I, I, can't, I don't know if I would really say there's any personal specific highlights, but one thing I'd love that you can hear, um, I think it's on the once in a lifetime version when Derek was still in the band 
was where he included the little piano bit. He played he played the uh, the melody on piano and almost kind of made it sound a little classical, like classical piano, as opposed to the way Kevin and I believe Jordan both play it, where it's just with a typical synth sound. So I don't know. It just it was a cool variation. That's a really underrated live album, incidentally. There's a looseness and there's sort of more of a freeness to it. For me, the best bits I've written, it's a really dorky thing, but it just caught me. Is There's a bit towards the start where the rest of the band is playing what I've called Riff B, which is the dun 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 uh, and John Myung uh, goes back to Riff A, so they're all playing the heavy bit, and he's going diddle-oo, 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 diddle-oo. That's, uh, that's that's the highlight of the song for me. Uh, I don't think we'll have to think too hard about whether this is a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Uh, definitely thumbs up. Absolutely. Yeah. Big time. So, on to, I would say, arguably the centrepiece of the album, The Killing Hand. So, lyric challenge. Do you know the story of The Killing Hand off the top of your head? Well, basically, I, I to try to tell the whole story. I mean, I, I cheated a little bit. I watched the, the old documentary that's also included in When Dream and Day Reunite. I remember John was kind of telling it. And the basic, you know, it, it's kind of a Twilight Zone kind of a story. So it's a guy that, you know kind of a science fiction kind of a thing and a guy and everybody's dead or everybody's gone and he sees all these names on this memorial wall and he travels back in time to figure out what the heck happened and basically finds out that he's the one who killed them all <laughs> that's uh that, that's pretty much spot on i was i was watching the same documentary and sort of just writing down as many notes as possible there's a memorial wall with loads of names on he sees these names, he's going, what happened here? What, what are all these memorial names for? So he goes through the sea, which is how he travels through time. I don't know if that's explained in the spin-off book. And yeah, he's surprised not to find a war that he's thinking that these memorial names are from. But there's like a tyrant king uh, who's making everyone suffer. Uh, so he becomes mortal and he kills the tyrant king. But then he finds out that he was the tyrant and he went back in time and killed himself. That's what I've got in the notes. It's There's there's a lot going on there. Uh-huh. There's a lot to digest. It's kind of like scenes from memory. <laughs> it is. It's in many ways a precursor to it. Hey, God, hey guys, you need to include Killing Hand in the next, uh, in, this, in this upcoming tour. It'll fit. <laughs> Plus also, it is going to be the 30th anniversary of Dream and Day Unite, you know, for this tour. So, you know, hey, you got to do it. I think The Killing Hand is a really good preview of who John Petrucci is as a lyricist. Mm-hmm. I sort of feel like it forms a template for The Astonishing in some ways. 
I've written in my notes. What have I written down? I've written, I will expand on this. It will make sense when I say it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's an interesting thing where he's interested in telling a story. He's interested in fiction. He's interested in the fantasy world. And there was a recent interview for Distance Over Time where they were asking... and. It gets asked of him quite often, and he always has the same answer, that if he wasn't a musician, he would be doing something else creative. He'd be, he was into painting, he's always been into writing stories. And I think The Killing Hand is the first glimpse of that storytelling instinct kicking in. Yeah, more so, I think, probably than any of the other songs, I would say. I think that's a fair assessment. Although that being said, though, I do like the fact that it's a little bit less specific. That's one thing, I, I guess if there's... One thing that I didn't like about The Astonishing, not to go off on a tangent too long, but was all the dialogue. I mean, I, I realized that maybe that was part of the songwriting style. Whereas I like with this and with Scenes from Memory that there's not so much dialogue. Things are kind of left a little bit more to open up to interpretation. That's one of the things I like about is that it's not quite so spelled out very specifically for you. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, it's certainly less less literal, I would say, than The Astonishing. It doesn't over-explain. It, he, he travels in time through the sea because it sounds nice as much as anything else. And there is more of a poetry to it, I would say, than there is in The Astonishing. What is your favourite part of the song? Once again, I would say... Uh, well, I mean, honestly, there's a couple things. Um, I really like the acoustic intro. Um, especially the way it was done on when Dream and Day reunite where uh, Jordan accompanied John. So, you know, typically I think it's in the studio version. It sounds like there is two guitar parts. John played both of them live. He wasn't able to do that. So Jordan accompanied him and it was a little variation. It wasn't exactly the same, I think, as on the album. But I also like the another hand um, intro that they had used many times live, which initially had been a bridge between Another Day and The Killing Hand, therefore the name why, why it was called Another Hand. Um, but the other thing I really like too was once again live starting in 96 when they did the fix for 96 shows is they expanded the last part of of the song exodus and they went into including a little bit of the melody from carol of the bells but then there's also an extended guitar solo and um i really like that guitar solo that that was added in live For me, 
I have written, and it's a very, very small bit. It's there's these tiny little features in it where the guitar is sort of mirroring the story. There's a small one after the line, he is risen, on the guitar it goes... Which I like. I like that it's doing the story. But the best bit, and I'd never caught this before I was doing my re-listen, is uh, after the line, I laugh at what I've done, uh, he sort of does a little laughing noise with the guitar. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best bit. Especially live, he kind of did that. It's, on various, at various shows, he did that. It's really, really good. Uh, and yeah, my, my, my favourite part of the song is that single laugh. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Definitely thumbs up. Yeah, it's a thumbs up. Light Fuse and Get Away. Kevin Moore's first song, I believe. Apparently he got the name from a box of firecrackers. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know that. <laughs> and it describes the mindset after getting out of a big relationship where you don't want any emotional intimacy anymore. So it's a very it's a very angry song. And I think even it's it's funny that even this early, there's a real contrast between the kind of lyrics that Kevin Moore writes and the kind of lyrics that John Petrucci writes. Mm-hmm. And these are both wonderful songs. I'm not using either one of these as a stick to beat the other. But I like the variety of going from Light Fuse and Getaway, who's writing about relationships and sort of this moody, emotional vibe, and John Petrucci, who likes to write about time-travelling dictators walking into the sea. It's, there's, a real, there's a real contrast there. And I think it's, uh, Absolutely. it's rich for the multitude of voices. Uh, I really approve. Talk me through your, your opinion of Night Fuse and Getaway. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, um, it's my favorite song. It's my favorite song. And, and it, unfortunately, it's also probably the most obscure song on the album. Um, it's, I think the song has probably been played the least live. I was fortunate enough to be able to actually see, I think, the last two performances of it in 2004 at the Dream and Day Reunite gig in Los Angeles. And then they also played it in uh, Boston on that same tour. The only two, two times that they played it on that tour. Oh, man. It was only two other times that they ever played it with James. And that was the very first two gigs that they played in 1993. And then, unfortunately, they, uh, for whatever reason, didn't like the way the set list was flowing. And so they revamped it and they dropped Light Views, which to me was a real shame. Because, again, you know, to me, it's a real highlight. I especially like, you know, I mean, I like the, I like the studio version. But the live version on When Dreaming Day Reunite, it's kind of cool because there's parts that get slowed down a little bit and it really adds a little bit more of a groove to it that, you know, you can really kind of feel and appreciate and everything. And then the instrumental section is expanded and um, both the studio version as well as the, the live version on Dreaming Day Reunite, I love that instrumental section. To me, that, you know, you, I know you're going to ask me what is a highlight. Well, that is it. That is the absolute highlight. I like the whole song, but if I had to pick a certain part that I really, really liked, it's a kind of spacey interlude that goes right into 
the guitar solo. I think it's a guitar solo. Um, that whole instrumental section, I just love. I'm going to read you my note now for the highlights. And it says, I love how mellow the instrumental section is while the rest of the song's very angry. And there's also a really great drum fill into the guitar solo. I, yeah, that was 100% my favorite bit as well. I'm really pleased to hear that it's your favourite song on the album as well because it was I don't know that it still is but certainly when I first listened to the album it was the one that really stood out to me and it was the first track off When Dreaming Day Unite to grab me Uh, I think it's an absolutely fantastic song never get played live again I'm sure (laughs) I really like the groove to it and I think it's tonally really interesting there's a lot going on there and it's unlike I feel like when Dream Day Unite in general is very unlike other Dream Theater albums, but I feel like Light Fuse and Getaway is rather unlike any of the other songs on When Dream Day Unite, and it's just yeah, this really great one off. I'm I'm a big fan. It's two thumbs up then, not to uh, not to assume or anything. But Absolutely excellent. Let's uh, let's move on to Afterlife. This is <laughs> I don't remember where I got this quote from. Uh, but Charlie Dominici said that he was trying to flip the conventional wisdom on its head with this one, uh, and he heard that you shouldn't try to answer questions in a song, but apparently he's been thinking about what happens after you die all his life, and these are his conclusions. Uh, so it's very much... It's Charlie Dominici's second and final contribution lyrically. I feel like it's a highlight for him vocally, certainly on the studio albums, I was about to say. Studio album singular. It seems to be one that's gained quite a lot of traction. It's had, fittingly, quite a long afterlife in Dream Theatre Live gigs. To a degree. I, you know, I would definitely say uh, Yitzhak Jam and A Fortune Lies definitely more so. I'm trying to even think in terms of live during all the time that Mike uh, Portner was still in the band. I don't, aside, I don't really think, aside from 2004, that it was really played that much. It was definitely on school. But I don't think it was played that much. But I know in 2015 they brought it back for their, uh, you know, for that short little run of shows that they did, festival shows that they did. Yeah, that's probably what I'm thinking of. I think because it has its prominent place on score where it was their choice for When Dreaming Day and Night, and then because it's been played the most recently out of any of them. Um, Mm -hmm. I tend to think of it as one that is played commonly but you're probably i mean you're set list scotty i'm not going to i'm not going to question your authority on set lists. Wrong. i'm i'm not above being wrong i'm perfect just like everybody else so <laughs> it's yeah it seems to be one that's re- that's i would say taking the temperature of the fan base it seems to be one of the more popular ones off the album mm-hmm. what's your opinion of it to be quite honest with you it's the one i like the least yes i am delighted that i've invited you on to hit you are confirming all of my biases i to me i i don't really know i mean it's not when, when i listen to it it's not necessarily a bad song but it doesn't grab me uh it's and it's always been that way it's always been the one song that it, i guess if there was one song i was going to skip on the album not that i would but if there was that would be the song it was just one that just and it's not because of the lyrics it's you know i think you know musically it just 
doesn't do too much for me personally. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I I assume that the reason that people have really connected to it is that it's maybe one of the riffiest songs on the album, but I just don't think there's anything especially special about it. I think it's especially special. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know when you start using a phrase ironically and it just creeps into your vocabulary, and then ten years later you're still saying especially special, and thinking where do I get that from? Oh yeah, James will never live that one down. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's perfectly fine. I enjoy it enough, but it's just there. Have you ever had a chance to listen to the Terry Brown remixes of that song and of Status Seeker? I have not. Tell me more. Well, there were both of those songs, first Status Seeker and then Afterlife, were both released as strictly as promotional singles, CD singles. I was lucky enough to actually at some point many years ago be able to buy copies of both of them i mean it definitely improves the sound quality of the songs it's a shame that the whole album that he didn't get a chance to remix the whole album Is it great? Is it up to modern day production standards? No, no. It still sounds relatively thin. And I'm sure part of that was just because of the style production at the time, um, as well as probably the the fact that the recording, I don't know you know, how good a quality the recordings were or even the, uh, the instruments that they were playing. But it is definitely, in my opinion, a marked improvement. And so it's definitely worth listening. And for anybody listening to this podcast that actually cares enough, you know, to go try to look them up as well. Charlie Dominici said in your interview that the producer for this album was reasonably inexperienced. And he chalked that to a lot of the reason that the album sounds the way it does. Well, it's funny because even the guys, they talked about that in the, in the commentary of Dream and Day Reunite. And I think probably even more than in experience, I, I'm thinking it's probably more of the budget and the amount of, and so therefore the limited amount of time that they had in the studio. So where on the on the thumb clock does this one rank? The afterlife, that would be the only one that I would probably give a thumbs down to. That's probably fair. I think I think I would put my thumb firmly in the middle. I struggle to have an opinion on it either way. Thumbs down, I feel like I reserve for something where I'm. I'm truly aghast. Afterlife is there. It sounds like afterlife, and then it stops being there. Uh, Because it segues quite neatly uh, into the ones who helped to set the song. The intro, which was nicknamed Death of Spock. Well, that was the original working title for the song, of course, given because of the intro, but yeah, yeah. It's um, sort of, yeah, they've they've got a bit of a history of doing this now, haven't they? Because Puppies on Acid is the same thing. Uh, the Mirror's working title is... I think that's really pretty much the way it's always been with them. I mean, with the new album, it's song one, song two, song three, song four, but in the past, yeah, they've always just kind of given wacky names to the songs just for whatever
For a long time with the ones who helped set the sun, I would say the intro was like the one thing that I really remembered about it. And the Uh rest of it sort of disappeared into the sort of afterlife fog. But while I've been doing this sort of, I guess, isolation therapy with with When Dream and Take Your Night, this is the song that I have most changed my opinion on, I would say. I have gone from being truly neutral, probably actually borderline thumbs down, to Mm -hmm. humming the chorus... Uh, as I'm going about my day-to-day life. I think it's a really solid song, and it is... Unique? Yeah, it's unique, it is. It's al- along with Light Fuse and Getaway. It's one which they ne- I wouldn't really compare any of their subsequent songs to. And it's really cool, and the album's richer for it. And for oh, 15 years I've been listening to this album, I never really appreciated it until the last couple of months. It's really good. Well, you know, it's funny because actually when I first started listening to the album, I think this was, well, I know for a fact, this was my favorite song for the longest time. And it still is a close second behind Light Fuse, but just over time, just for whatever reason, I've taken a little bit, if I had to pick one or the other, it would be Light Fuse. But uh, the ones who helped to set the sun, or as I like to say, the abbreviated form is to what's it. <laughs> Such a long title, I'll tell you. But it, it has always been one of my favorites. I think, the in, again, the intro, like you were saying, definitely stands out. And I think that's probably what was initially appealing to me. But yeah, the rest of the song I really like too. And there's not a whole lot more I can really say other than it's just, it's a good song. Unusual. I can see why, once again, it's one of the obscure songs that probably will likely never, ever be played again. But it's definitely a great song. I'm so glad that at least in 2004 that they uh that mike included it in the master set list so that it got uh some airtime on a fairly regular basis and i was fortunate enough to be able to see it live a number of times so it's funny funny story about that song when i saw them for the second time which was on the waking up the world tour in 94 i happened to go to the venue super early in the day and this was in the beginning stages of the internet Mm -hmm. um I mean, you heard about this internet thing, but I wasn't online. And actually, it was because of this particular, what happened before this particular show, I happened to meet a guy that happened to be in line with me because we got there early. And um, and he told me all about how there's this community of Dream Theater fans that are on there and they have this mailing list thing. And I'm like, Really? So, you know, this internet thing went from being something that was kind of just you'd hear about to something like, I got to get on here. And so that's actually more than anything else what what drove me to uh, in, strongly encourage my father to get us online. <laughs> <laughs> it's down to this song. <laughs> well, down to that. No. <laughs> this song specifically, not to get sidetracked, but actually earlier in the day i had gotten to the venue i think it was probably around 12 o'clock noon or something like that i got there super early to make sure i could catch the guys and um and i remember um watching you know the crew kind of setting up and this was before sound check and jp walked in and uh, at this time i wasn't i still didn't know that mike was the set list writer and all that stuff and i hadn't gotten to know him on a personal basis but I remember talking to him and asking him some questions, and he was very cordial with me. And um, and I remember asking him about to what's it's. And 
if um, if they would be playing it. And of course, this was literally, I think, two gigs, two to three gigs after they had dropped it. So I was so bummed. I mean, it was cool because, as it turns out, they swapped in what a, a, kind of an instrumental jam that became known as the Awake Jam in its place. But you know, I mean, of course, that at that time was my favorite song, and so you know, just having missed them playing it, you know, was was quite the bummer for me at the time. But you know, ten years later, Mike added it back into the set list, and so. I managed to see several shows on that tour and was lucky enough to see that song live a number of times. So very grateful for it. I'm delighted that you did. That would have been such a tragic ending if that was where that story ended. (laughs) One of the things, in fact, I think they even talk about it in the commentary of Dream of Day Reunite is how challenging it was to come up with a vocal melody for this song. And there there is one version of that song on the demos where Charlie sings a completely different vocal melody for the for the verse. The chorus I think is the same. Like you can just kind of see it's just kind of like they're just spitballing ideas, just trying to come up. What would work with this song? How can we get this to work? As to what it's his number one super fan, uh-huh. I'm sure you will have a perfectly easy time explaining to me what the song's about. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> the song doesn't mean I know what the lyrics are all about. <laughs> um, no, actually, it's funny because. Again, I was just re-listening to part of that interview I had done with Charlie, uh, good God, 14 years ago. And um, well, I remember even what John had mentioned, I think, in that documentary, too, is about somebody who is driving. So that's why you hear the windshield wipers. And just for like a split second kind of spaces out and is kind of like meditating on where is his life going and stuff like that. But then Charlie had mentioned, too, in the interview about how he had, I think it had to do kind of like with what they were accomplishing. And so now, instead of just simply being ones who watched the sunset, they were the ones who were actually setting the sun. So they were making things happen. I kind of get, I kind of believe, if I understood it correctly, that's kind of basically what the point was, is that instead of just being people that were just observing things from the side and not being movers and shakers i guess you could say now they were being movers and shakers yeah that's uh i mean i've used the same sources as you for my notes uh yeah that's uh that's 100 percent it you are living up to your reputation as the twats is super fan <laughs> it is funny that there's the two dueling interpretations of it going around um i suppose they are sort of compatible with each other you've sort of got the thing of yeah, the way John Petrucci tells it, it's a fictional story in the same way that The Killing Hand is, and it's sort of it's about some person who's has a split second, yeah, as you say, falling asleep at the wheel, and has a sort of dream of how everyone would react uh, if he happened to crash, and sort of realizes he's been working too hard. I guess you could sort of have them, you could sort of synchronize them together by saying maybe it was maybe they were looking at the amount of effort that they were putting in and actually making the 
metaphorical sunset. I, I really like the uh, sunset metaphor. So. I think it's possible. I mean, I mean, obviously, John is the one who wrote the lyrics, so he would know. But then I think Charlie probably also had some insight because, of course, he was the one who was singing the song, and so he probably maybe asked John about understanding what is what are the lyrics all about and so probably john was explaining it so i think the difference between this song and say for instance the killing hand is i think the killing hand is strictly a fictional story that has no basis in reality whereas the ones who helped to set the sun is probably not autobiographical but probably is semi-biographical or at least was inspired to some degree by real life What is your highlight of the song? And is it the obvious highlight? Well, I mean, obviously the keyboard intro is really cool. I love how spacey and dreamy and everything it is. And then all of a sudden that donut, 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 you know, that kind of like very abrupt, you know, kind of kind of the same way that Mike would sometimes write the set list where the set list that he used to come up with, it would have like a mellow song like, surrounded followed by lie or something like that so completely abrupt change that's kind of like the same thing in one single song so um but I, aside you know the easy answer of course is the intro but i would say even the instrumental section is really good too I endorse both of your highlights uh, and because I have been humming it for the last several months now um, I've got to say the chorus is also in there as one of the top bits never cared for it, now I do I'm assuming this is thumbs up from you absolutely Before we reach the final song of the album, a quick intermission. Spoiler alert, listeners of a sensitive disposition, please be warned. This is Charlie Dominici's last album. (gasps) I know, right? How do you find out that Charlie Dominici has left the band in a... Crazy backwards world where the internet isn't yet a thing. How, how, how does that happen? Well, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a funny story. I remember back in the day, way back in the day, you know, before, again, before Dirt was invented, there was a music store that I loved to frequent. Of course, it was on the complete opposite side of town. So, and this was before I had a car. So I had to take the bus to get there. I remember actually going to the same record store. It was a, they actually had a store within a store. The store inside the store was called The Metal Shop. It was kind of like in the back area, and it was all different kinds of metal music, you know, of every kind, and they had their own cash register, and all the decorations and promotional stuff was all strictly metal stuff of every kind that you can imagine. So I remember I would go there periodically, and I got to know one of the guys that was a cashier there. And for whatever reason, I swear, the guy kind of reminded me of Jakey e. Lee from Ozzy's band in the... Uh, 
mid-80s. He kind of had that look. But I remember talking to him, and it's funny too, actually, now that I remember it, they actually had a picture of Dream Theater, a big picture too, like, uh, I don't know, probably 18 inches by 24 inches, maybe even bigger. And it was signed by the guys in the band. But I remember asking the guy periodically about Dream Theater, and he seemed to kind of have an idea. So this is, like I said, this is like 90, 91, and... I don't know where he had got the information from, if there was some sort of industry information that was out there or what, but he was the one who I remember, oh yeah, they're working on a new album and they got they got a new they got a new lead singer. So that's how I found out about it. In the metal shop on the south side of Milwaukee. Are you worried when you find out that Charlie Dominici's left? Are they are they big shoes to fill? I don't really remember I don't think so. I don't think I was like I I wasn't shocked. Um, I won't even say I was disappointed. It was just kind of like, okay, you know. How much at this stage do you associate Charlie Dominici with the band's sound? Well, up until that point, I always did, you know. Um, even even when Images and Words came out, um, I had still associated Charlie with Dream Theater sound. I mean, when I first picked up Images and Words, and I think I got it pretty, I don't know if I got it on release day or if I got it pretty close to release day. I didn't get it at the metal shop, oddly enough. I don't even know why, but I got it somewhere else. But I remember when I first listened to the album, it was like, it sounded like a different band. Because again, you have to keep in mind, all I had, my whole idea of what Dream Theater was, was what was on Dream and Day Unite. And so all of a sudden to sit there and start playing their new CD, and even the guys look different in the picture and the sleeve. And now all of a sudden the, the sound is completely different and it's the opening chords of Pull Me Under and then eventually when the vocals come in, it's this guy that sounds nothing like Charlie. It's kind of like, whoa. So it took me some time to get used to Dream Theater's new sound. <laughs> Go figure. He has released a trilogy of solo albums called O3, a trilogy, between 2005 and 2008. Have you have you heard any of his solo stuff? Well, actually, I mean, again, with that conversation, uh, that interview that we had, uh, he had talked about the first one. This was before he ended up building a band and everything. And even too much later, I know I'd stopped by at his house a second time, and, um, and I think he gave me a copy of it and you know again it was just acoustic guitar and vocal and i think i listened to it like once it was something that didn't grab me and i to be honest with you i always intended to pick up the other two full band albums and i never did um i don't even i think maybe i've heard bits and pieces of a couple of the songs um i think if i'm not mistaken some some fans are saying oh it sounds too much like the mirror sounds too much like certain theater songs so of course i you know curiosity got me and so i had to check this out and whether it was true or not but beyond that i've honestly i've never listened to those albums and i i really i probably should um i just never did never picked them up yeah it's as you say the first one is sort of it's just him with a guitar and a harmonica and it's very stripped down 
when he was first, or it might have been a couple of years after he released it, he was selling signed copies, uh, and you just he sort of had his email address up and was like, hey, email me and pay me, pay me and I'll send you a signed copy. So I took him up on that and I had a little listen to it. I, I listened to it. I wasn't gripped by it, but I did come back for the second one. There were a couple of cool songs on there. I seem to remember liking one called Greed the Evil Seed. You say you were doing the the conversation with him was around the time that he was producing that first album, and it's really good that he managed to sort of get the whole thing out there. And he was saying that he didn't know if it might only just be the one disc; he was just going to follow it and see where it goes. So I think it's really cool that uh, that he created a suite of three concept albums. There's not that's that's more prog than dream theater. It's right up there with Jeff Tate and his Operation Mindcrime CDs, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the new Jeff Tate. Circa 2008. No, no, no. Let's get on then to the final track of the album, Only a Matter of Time. I've not written a huge number of notes about this one because, again, I don't know how much my perception of how well people know the songs from When Dream Day Unite is distorted by what I knew and how quickly I got into the band but certainly only a matter of time was on live at Budokans uh, which was new at the time that I was getting into the band so I think I knew only a matter of time before I knew some of their albums like Falling Into Infinity so I came to know it as a James Labrie song and then I was like oh and Charlie Dominici sings it too what are your thoughts on the song? Well, I mean, it's a good song. It's not my favorite, but I would definitely rate it as as a definitely good song. It's, again, like with Kevin's other lyrics, it's very busy. Mm. But to be honest with you, I mean, I like it. It fits the song. I like the hopefulness of the words. You know, the fact that it's going to be only, basically, it's only going to be a matter of time before we're going to be successful. And that's proven to be true. It's kind of funny because, of course, lyrically, unofficially speaking, then they wrote Take the Time, which is kind of like a, a lyrical sequel of sorts to Only a Matter of Time. But, I mean, no, it, it's a great song. It's a song that I enjoy listening to. The thing that grabs me about it, um, and as you say, it's a very optimistic song, and perhaps uncharacteristically optimistic for a Kevin Moore song who's usually writing about death and breaking up with people. There's a moment, I would say that the verses come in two blocks, and the even when plans go to pieces, like I found in my faith, it feels like something joyous erupting from the center of the song. And I really like the way that the outro carries that same melody out, and it's sort of it feels like a really positive note to end on on an album that I would say is reasonably dark for quite a lot of it tonally. It feels like a real pudding it feels like an antidote to the rest of the album and i don't mean that as anything against the rest of the album but uh yeah the thing that you say about the busy verses i can imagine that if they kept doing that with every album i would be sick of it by awake but as it's something that they've only ever done on when dream and day unite i sort of really like it and i find it quite endearing it's it's one of those unusual things that sort of becomes a, a weird signature of the album and it's really on show in Only a Matter of Time. Apollo's benediction as his hopeful son departs 
Lyrically, it was written in a period, as you say, when everything was going reasonably well and everyone sort of kept saying that it was only a matter of time, but they weren't making any money, so they just sort of had to rely on the hope that it would only be a matter of time, which is where sort of the lines fearless faith in destiny come from, is sort of expressing the fear as well as the optimism. And I like that that sort of feels echoed musically as well. It's It really lightens up as the song goes on, and I think that's cool. Do you have any particular highlights, or is it just a good song at the end of the album for you? I think, you know, I, I kind of think you touched on a little bit as the outro, you know, um, just the kind of way it kind of builds up and builds up. I think probably not that it's because it's the end of the song or the end of the album, but I don't know. It's just a part that I kind of gravitate towards. But even too, now here's another one for you to dig up. In um, fall and winter of 93, uh, when they were on their last leg of the tour in Europe, they brought the song back. They had initially had it in the set back in 92, then they dropped it, but then they brought it back in 93. Um, towards the end but the thing that was cool about it in 93 is they tacked on i think it's about a minute and a half for the last two minutes of an old majesty song march of the tyrant and it just made it that much more cool love to see them do that again again i doubt it'll ever happen i would hope either at least that song or perhaps the killing hand would at least make a return to the dream theater set list perhaps even again on this tour because it is the 30th anniversary of dream and day unite um so it would be in a perfect time for it um whether that'll happen or not i don't know i probably i'm doubting it will but you know one can always be hopeful is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down for only a matter of time absolute thumbs up it's a good album for thumbs upses uh so now we've listened to all of when dreaming day and night and the outro is still ringing in our heads what are your favorite songs of the album what's it's and uh light fuse those are the t- top two but i love i i like i i really like most of the album though i really do afterlife is the only one that is eh, just okay what would you say is the most underappreciated part of the album then if you wanted to encourage the listener to give one part of the album or really one song i suppose a second chance which would you recommend they focus on i you know that's a good question because again i mean the songs that i like the most are probably the most uncommercial and the most obscure songs so I couldn't really say those two songs. There probably would be very few fans that would say, "Yeah, you're right." I really don't know what to tell you on that. I, you know, I guess, I guess the Killing Hand are the only a matter of time. You know, I would say, I'm, I'm going to uh, fully join the To What's It's uh, brigade. I, it's taken me a lot of chances to get on with that song, but I am delighted to be there. And I would, I would encourage any fans to brute force that song until you finally love it. <laughs> Is there anything unique about this album that you that you miss in future albums? The Innocence, um, which I guess you could also say is a bit of immaturity, but uh, but I guess I guess I would say that probably more than anything else is the innocence of it. You know, it's interesting too because once again, going back to the commentary on Dream and Day Reunite, you know, John My Young kind of is where he kind of starts reminiscing about how great it was that they were all living together and. 
you know, in, in working on the album together and blah, blah, blah. And then he kind of got poo-pooed by, by the rest of the guys as, well, that's not practical anymore because we all are family men and we have so many other responsibilities and blah, 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 blah. But it's interesting because that's exactly what they ended up doing with this most recent album, Distance Over Time, is that they did that very thing. And in fact, the difference is, is that instead of just the three weeks working on in the album, uh, recording it, they even spent the time too in, in writing the songs too. So while I know it won't have the innocence of, of Dream and Unite, um, I do find it interesting that they kind of finally implemented what John Mayung had kind of wished all those years ago. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you, the listeners, so much for listening. You've been listening to Full Circle, a Dream Theatre podcast. My name's Rob Webster. I've been joined by Scott Hansen. For more Dream Theatre things, visit www.robdwebster.com and join us next time for Natures and Words. Very good. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. The music used in this episode was predominantly taken from Dream Theatre's 1989 album, When Dream and Day Unite. The extended intro to Status Seeker, or Status Seeker, depending on your outlook on life, was taken from Dream Theatre's 1993 performance in Milwaukee. The variation on Yitzhe Jam was from the 1998 release, Once in a Lifetime. Another Hand was taken from the 1993 release, Live at the Marquee. The extended version of The Killing Hand is from the 2005 release, When Dream and Day Reunite. The alternative mix of Afterlife is only available on a promotional CD, so you know, good luck with that. The performance of Only a Matter of Time featuring March of the Tyrant comes from the bootleg Lost in the Sky, a November 1993 performance in Milan. The first Charlie Dominici track was I Will Return, from 03 A Trilogy Part 1. The second track was Greed the Evil Seed by the band Dominici from their album 03 A Trilogy Part 2. This podcast was produced and edited by me, Thanks again to Scott Hansen for some of the clips and his help with the research and for sitting down with me for however many hours to speak Dream Theatre. Please visit robdwebster.com for more Dream Theatre stuff and to take a very short survey on When Dream and Day Unite, which we might feature in a future episode.